0: This episode of Voices in AI is brought to you by NVIDIA. As you no doubt know, deep learning, which is of course the fastest growing segment in artificial intelligence, was really only a theory until leading researchers around the world started using NVIDIA's GPUs. Now entire industries are being redefined from healthcare to retail. NVIDIA celebrates the innovators that are turning moonshots into real results, including those featured in this Voices in AI episode. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Scott Clark. He is the CEO and the co-founder of SIGOT. They're a SaaS startup for tuning complex systems and machine learning models. Before that, Scott worked on the AI targeting team at Yelp, leading the charge on academic research and outreach. He holds a PhD in applied mathematics and an MS in computer science from Cornell, and a BS in mathematics, physics, and computational physics from Oregon State University. He was chosen as one of Forbes' 30 Under 30 in 2016. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks for having me. So, I'd like to start with the question um, because I know two people ever answer it the same. What is artificial intelligence?
1: Definitely. Um... So I like to uh, go back to an old quote that uh, I don't remember the attribution for it, but uh, I think it actually fits the definition pretty well. Artificial intelligence is what machines can't currently do. Um, And so it's the idea that there's this moving goalpost for what artificial intelligence actually means. Um, So 10 years ago, artificial intelligence meant being able to classify images. Like can a machine look at a picture and tell you what's in the picture? But now we can do that pretty well. Uh, Maybe 20, 30 years ago, if you told somebody that there would be uh, a browser where you could type in words and it would automatically correct your spelling and grammar and understand language, people would think that's artificial intelligence. And I think there's been this slight shift somewhat recently where people are calling deep learning artificial intelligence and things like that. It's got a little bit conflated with specific tools. Um, So now people talk about artificial general intelligence as this impossible next thing. But I think a lot of people in their minds think of artificial intelligence as whatever it is that's next that computers haven't figured out how to do yet that humans can do. But as computers continually kind of make progress on those fronts, uh, the goalposts continually change. So I'd say today people think of it as conversational systems, uh, uh, basic tasks that humans can do in five seconds or less, and then artificial general intelligence is everything after that. And then things like spell check or uh, being able to do anomaly detection are just taken for granted, and that's just machine learning now.
0: Well, uh, I'll accept all of that, but that's more of a sociological observation about how we think of it than actually, like, I'll I'll change the question. What is intelligence?
1: (laughs) That's a much more difficult question. So, maybe the ability to reason about your environment and draw conclusions from it.
0: And so do you think that what we're building are systems, are they artificial in the sense that we just built them, but they can do that? Or are they artificial in the sense that they can't really do that, but they sure can fake it well. So I think they're artificial in the sense
1: that they're not biological systems. Um, they seem to be able to perceive input in the same way that a human can perceive input. Um, and draw conclusions based off of that input. Usually uh, the reward system in place in an artificial intelligence uh, framework is designed to do a very specific thing very well. So is there a cat in this picture or not? As opposed to a human, it's try to live a fulfilling life. Um, So the objective functions are slightly different, but I think they're interpreting outside stimuli via some input mechanism, and then trying to apply that towards a specific goal. Um, the goals for artificial intelligence today are extremely short-term, but I think that they're performing it, performing them on the same level or better sometimes than a human, uh, presented with the exact same short-term goal. The artificial component, I think comes into the fact that they were constructed non-biologically, but, uh, other than that, I think they kind of meet the definition of observing stimuli, reasoning about an environment and achieving some outcome.
0: You used the phrase, they draw conclusions. Are you using that kind of colloquially? Or or does the machine actually conclude? Or does it merely calculate?
1: So it calculates, but then uh, it comes to, I guess, a decision at the end of the day. So uh, if it's a classification system, for for example, going back to, is there a cat in this picture? Um, It draws the conclusion that, yes, there was a cat. No, there wasn't a cat. It can do that with various levels of certainty. Um, in the same way that potentially a human would solve the exact same problem. If I showed you a blurry Polaroid picture, you might be able to say, I'm pretty sure there's a cat in there, but I'm not 100% certain. And if I show you a very crisp picture of a kitten, you could be like, yes, there's a cat there. And I think uh, convolutional neural network is doing the exact same thing. Taking in that outside stimuli, not through an optical nerve, but through the raw encoding of pixels, and then coming to the exact same conclusion.
0: So you, you make the distinction, of course, between an AGI, which is, you know, a, a general intelligence, something as versatile as a human, and then the kinds of stuff we're building now, which we call AI, which which is doing this um, reasoning or con- drawing conclusions in all of that that you say. Is is an AGI a, a, a linear development from what we have now? Uh, in other words, do we kind of have all the pieces and we just need faster computers, better algorithms, more data? Uh, And, you know, a few nips and tucks and we're eventually going to get an AGI or is an AGI something very different that is uh, kind of a whole different ball of wax.
1: Yeah, I'm not convinced that uh, with the current tooling we have today, that it's just like if we add one more hidden layer to a neural network, all of a sudden it'll be AGI. That being said, I think this is how science and computer science and uh, progress in general kind of works is that techniques are built upon each other. Um, We make advancements. It might be a completely new type of algorithm. It might not be a neural network. It might be reinforcement learning. It might not be reinforcement learning. It might be the next thing. Um, It might not be on a CPU or a GPU. Maybe it's on a quantum computer. Um, So if you think of scientific and technological process as this kind of linear evolution of different techniques and ideas, then I definitely think we are marching towards that as like an eventual uh, uh, outcome. That being said, I don't think that there's some magic combinatorial setting of what we have today that will turn into this. Um, I don't think it's one more hidden layer. I don't think it's a GPU that can do one more teraflop or something like that that's going to push us over the edge. I think it's going to be things built from the foundation that we have today, um, but it will continue to be kind of new and novel techniques. Similar to, there was this interesting talk at uh, the international conference in machine learning in Sydney last week about AlphaGo and how they got this massive speed up when they uh, put in deep learning um, and they were able to kind of break through this plateau that they had found um, in terms of playing ability, whether they can play at the amateur level, And then once they started applying deep learning networks, that got them to the professional and now best in the world level. I think we're going to continue to see plateaus for some of these current techniques, but then we'll come up with some new strategy that will blast us through and get to the next plateau. But I think that's an ever um, kind of stratifying uh, process.
0: So do you think to, to continue on that, in that vein, you know, when, when in 1955, they convened at Dartmouth and said, we can solve a big part of AI in a summer, you know, with five people. Um, yeah. the, the assumption was that intelligence, general intelligence was something that all the other sciences, they, they had a few simple laws, you know, you had Newton, and, Maxwell, you know, electricity and magnetism and all these things. And they were just a few simple laws. And the idea was that, all we just need to do is figure out those for intelligence. And then, and, and, and Pedro Domingos argues in the master algorithm from a biological perspective, that in a sense that may be true, that if you look at the DNA difference between us and an animal that isn't generally intelligent, the amount of code is just a few meg that's different, that, that, ta- that, that teaches how to make my brain and your brain uh, is very small. So do you hold any hope that, because it sounded like you were saying, no, there's not going to be some silver bullet. It's going to be a bunch of silver buckshot and we'll eventually get there. But do you hold any hope that maybe it is a simple and elegant thing? Well, I guess
1: once again, going back to my uh, original statement about what is AI, like I think when Marvin Minsky and everybody sat down in Dartmouth, like the goalpost for AI was somewhat different. I think, because they were attacking it for the first time, some of the things were definitely over ambitious, but certain things that they set out to do that summer, they actually accomplished uh, reasonably well. And things like the Lisp programming language and things like that came out of that um, and were extremely successful. But then once these goals are accomplished, the next thing comes up. Um, And it obviously in hindsight was over ambitious to think that they could maybe match a human, but I think if you were to, to go back to Dartmouth and show them what we have today and say, look, this computer can describe the scene in this picture completely accurately. Uh, I think that could be indistinguishable from the artificial intelligence that they were seeking. Even if today what we want is someone we can have a conversation with. And then once we can have a conversation, the next thing is we want them to be able to plan our lives for us or whatever it may be, solve uh, world peace. Um, And I I guess while I think there are some of the fundamental building blocks that will continue to be used, like I think linear algebra and calculus and things like that will definitely be a core component of the algorithms that that make up whatever does become AGI, uh, I think there is a pretty big jump between that. So even if there's only a few megabytes difference between us and a starfish or something like that, um, every piece of DNA is two bits Um, if you have millions of differences, like four to the, to several million, like the state space for DNA, even though you can store it in a small amount of megabytes, there's so many different combinatorial combinations that, uh, it's not like we're just going to stumble upon it, um, by editing something that we currently have. Like it could be something very kind of different in that configuration space. And I think those are the algorithmic advancements that will continue to push us to the next plateau and the next plateau until eventually we meet and or surpass the human plateau.
0: You invoke quantum computers in passing, but putting that aside for a moment, do you, would, you, would you believe just at a gut level, because nobody knows, that we have enough computing power to build an AGI? We just don't know how. Well, in the sense that
1: uh, if a human brain is general intelligence, the computing power in a human brain, uh, while impressive, uh, all of the computers in the world um, are probably better at performing some simple ca- calculations than the biological gray matter mess that exists in all of our skulls. So I think like the raw amount of transistors and things like that might be there if we had the right way to apply them, if they were all applied in the same direction. Um, that being said, whether or not that ma- that's enough to make it ubiquitous or um, whether or not having all the computers in the world mimic a single human child will be considered artificial general intelligence, or if we're going to need to apply it to many different situations and things like that before we claim victory. I think that's up for like semantic debate.
0: How do you, do you think that we can learn anything? Like, do you think about how the brain works, even, even if it's not biological, but just how, is that how you start a problem? Well, how do, how do humans do this? How do we, does that even guide you? Or does that even begin the conversation? I mean, and I know that it's none of this is a map, you know, the whole birds fly with wings and airplanes, you know, all of that. But, but is there anything to learn from human intelligence that you, again, a practical day-to-day sense use? Yeah,
1: definitely. Um, So I think, it it often helps to try to approach a problem from a, a from fundamentally different ways. So one way to approach that problem is from the pure kind of mathematical axiomatic way where we're trying to build up from first principles and trying to get to something um, that has like a nice proof or something associated with it. Um, Another way to try to attack the problem is, yeah, from a more biological setting. Like if I had to solve this problem and I couldn't assume any of those axioms. Then how would I begin to try to like build heuristics around it? And then sometimes you can go from that back to the proof, but there's many different ways to kind of like attack that problem. Um, Obviously there's a lot of things um, in computer science and uh, optimization in general that are motivated by physical phenomena. So a neural network if you squint, it looks kind of like a biological uh, brain neural network. Um, there's things like simulated annealing, which is a, a global optimization strategy that mimics the way that like steel is annealed, where it tries to find some local lattice structure that has low energy, and then you pound the steel with the hammer, and it increases the energy to find maybe a, a better global optima lattice structure um, that is harder steel but that's also an extremely popular algorithm in the scientific literature. So it was come to from this kind of, uh, auxiliary way or a genetic algorithm or something like that, where you're slowly evolving a population to try to get to a good result. So I think there's definitely room for a lot of these algorithms to be inspired by, uh, biological or physical phenomena, um, whether or not, uh, they, they're required to, to be, um, from that to be, uh, proficient or whatever it is like i'm i would have trouble off the top of my head coming up with a biological equivalent for like a support vector machine or something like that so i think there's two different ways to attack it but both can produce really interesting results
0: well let let me let's take just a you know a normal thing that a human does which is um you show a human you know training data of one of the Maltese falcon you know the the um the little statue from the movie, just the statue. And then you, you show them a bunch of photos and human can instantly say, there's the Falcon underwater and there's it half hidden by a tree and there's it's upside down. And human does that naturally. So it's some kind of transfer learning or some, some kind of like, how do we do that? And, and is thinking about how we do that. Is, how do we do that by the way?
1: Yeah. So I think transfer learning is the way that, that that happens. Like you've seen trees before, you've seen water, you've seen how objects look inside and outside of water before, and then you're able to apply that knowledge um, to this new context. And I think it might be difficult for uh, a human who grew up in a sensory deprivation chamber um, to look at this object. And then you start to show them things that they have never seen before. Here's this object and a tree, and they might not see the forest for the trees, as it were. Um, In addition to that, without any context whatsoever, you take someone who was raised in a sensory deprivation chamber, and you start showing them pictures and ask them to do like classification type tasks, they may be completely unaware of like, what's the, the reward function here? Who's this thing telling me to do things for the first time I've never seen before? Like, what does it mean to even classify things or describe an object because you've never seen an object before? And when you start training these systems from scratch with no previous knowledge, that's how they work They need to slowly learn up what's good, what's bad. There's a reward function associated with that, but with no context, with no previous information, like it's actually very surprising how well they are able to perform at these tasks, considering a, a child born and four hours later, isn't able to do this, a machine algorithm that's trained, from scratch over the course of four hours on a couple of GPUs is able to do this.
0: So you, you, you mentioned the sensory deprivation chamber a couple of times. Do you have a sense that we're gonna to need to embody these AIs to, to allow them to, and I don't wanna use the word very loosely, experience the world, is that, are they locked in a sensory deprivation chamber right now and, and that's limiting them?
1: Well, I think uh, with transfer learning and uh, pre-training of data and some reinforcement algorithm work, uh, there's definitely uh, this, this idea of trying to to make that uh, better and bootstrapping based off of previous knowledge in the same way that a human would uh, attack this problem. Um, I think it is a limitation. I think it would be very difficult to go from zero to artificial general intelligence without providing more of this context. And there's been many papers recently, and like OpenAI had this, this great blog post recently where if you teach the machine language first, if you show it a bunch of kind of contextual information, this idea of this unsupervised learning component of it, where it's just kind of absorbing information about um, the, the potential inputs it can get, that allows it to perform much better on a specific task. In the same way that a baby absorbs language um, for a long time before it actually starts to produce itself. And it could be in a very unstructured way, but it's able to learn some of the, uh, the actual like, language structure or uh, sounds from the particular culture in which it was raised in this unstructured way.
0: Let's talk a minute, if, if you will, about human intelligence. Um, why do you think we understand so poorly how the brain works?
1: Uh, That's a great question. So um, it's easier scientifically. So uh, with my background in like math and physics, it seems like it's easier to uh, break down modular decomposable systems. Um, uh, Humanity has done a very good job at kind of understanding, at least at a high level, um, like how physical systems work or things like chemistry biology starts to get a little bit messier because it's less modular and less decomposable. And as you start to build larger and larger biological systems, um, it becomes a lot harder to kind of understand all the different moving pieces. Um, And then you go to the brain and then you start to look at psychology and sociology and things like that. And all of the lines get much fuzzier. It's very difficult to build up kind of an axiomatic rule system. And, humans aren't even able to do that in some sort of grand unified way with uh, physics or understand like quantum mechanics or things like that, let alone being able to do it for these um, sometimes infinitely more complex systems.
0: Right. But you know, the the most successful animal on the planet is a, is a nematode worm. Like 10% of all animals are nematode worms and they, they, they're they're successful. They find food and they reproduce and they move and their brains have 302 neurons, you know, and we've spent 20 years trying to model that. Like a bunch of very smart people in the open worm projects, but 20 years trying to model 300, 300, neurons to just reproduce this worm, make a digital version of it. And, and even to this day, people in the project say it may not be possible.
1: So I guess the argument is, uh, 300 sounds like a small amount. Uh, One thing that's very difficult for humans to uh, kind of internalize is the exponential function. So if intelligence grew linearly, then yeah, if we could understand one, then 300 might not be that much or whatever it is. But if the state space grows exponentially or the complexity grows exponentially, um, if there's 10 different positions for every single one of those neurons, like 10 to the 300, um, that's more than the number of atoms in the universe.
0: Right. I mean, but we aren't starting by just rolling three hundred dice and hoping for them all to be. I mean, because we we know how those neurons are arranged. You know, At a high level, we do right. Um, well, I I would I would I'm getting maybe to a point that maybe we don't even understand how a neuron works. Like a neuron may be this thing is as, as complicated as it may be you know doing stuff down at the, at the quantum level it may it, it may be this gigantic supercomputer we don't even have a hope of understanding a single neuron and um well i, I, think- I, I
1: from a chemical, uh, way, uh, we can have an understanding of, okay, so we have neurotransmitters that carry a positive charge that then cause a reaction based off of some threshold of charge. And there's this catalyst that happens. And I think from like a physics and chemical, uh, understanding, like we can understand the base components of it. Um, but as you start to build these complex systems that have this combinatorial set of states, um, it does become much more difficult. And I think that's that abstraction where um, we can understand how simple chemical reactions work, but then it becomes much more difficult once you start adding more and more. Or even in physics, like if you have two bodies and you're trying to calculate the gravity, like that's relatively easy. Three, harder, four, maybe impossible. Like it, it becomes much, much harder to solve these higher order, higher body problems. And even with 302 neurons um, that starts to get pretty complex.
0: Oddly, two of them aren't connected to anything. They're just like floating out there. <laughs> In any case, um, do you think it's possible that human intelligence, well, uh, more than it's possible, do you think human intelligence is emergent?
1: In what respect?
0: Well, I, I, w- I will clarify that. So uh, th- there are, there are, two sorts of emergence one is weak and one is strong so weak emergence is where a system takes on characteristics that don't appear at first glance to be uh derivable from them so the the, the intelligence displayed by an ant colony or a beehive the way that some bees can shimmer in unison to scare off predators you know no 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 bees saying we need to do this and you know the ant hill behaves intelligently, even though there's, the queen isn't like in charge. The queen just is just another ant, and but somehow it all adds intelligence. So that w- that would be something where it takes on these attributes. Like, can you really derive intuitively derive intelligence from neurons? And then to push that a step further, there there are some who believe in something called strong emergence, where they literally are not derivable. You cannot you cannot look at a bunch of matter and explain how it can become conscious, for instance, is is what a minority of people believe uh, about emergence, that that there's some additional property of the universe we do not understand that that makes these things happen. So I guess the question I'm asking you is, is reductionism the way to go to figure out intelligence? Mm -hmm. Is that how we're gonna kind of make advances towards an AGI, is just break it down into enough small pieces
1: I think that is a approach whether or not that's the ultimate approach that works um, is uh, to be seen. Um, As I was mentioning before, I think there are ways to take uh, biological or like physical systems and then try to work them back into something that then can be used and applied in a different context. There's other ways where you start from just the more uh, theoretical or axiomatic Way and try to move forward into something that then can be applied to a specific problem I think there's wide swaths of the universe that we don't understand uh, at many levels Um, Mathematics isn't solved physics isn't solved chemistry isn't solved like all of these build on each other to Get to these large complex biological systems So it may be a very long time or we might need an AGI to help us uh, solve some of these systems Um, I don't think it's required to understand everything to be able to observe intelligence, like proof by example. Like I can't tell you why my brain thinks, but my brain is thinking if you can assume that humans are thinking. Um, So you don't necessarily need to understand all of it to put it all together.
0: let, Let me ask you one more far out question and then I'll, Uh, we'll we'll go to a a little more immediate future. Um, do you have a theory on, do you have an opinion on how consciousness comes about? And if you do or don't, do you believe we're going to build conscious machines? And even to throw a little more into that one, do you think consciousness, that ability to change focus and all of that is a requisite for general intelligence?
1: So wait. So I would like to hear your definition of conf- consciousness.
0: Fair enough. So so I, I will I would define it by um, example, to say that it's it's the it's subjective experience. It's your how you experience things. And I would I would describe that by saying that we've all had that experience when you're driving that you kind of space out and zone, and then all of a sudden you kind of snap to and go, whoa! I don't even remember kidding here. And so that time when you were driving kind of, your brain was elsewhere as it were, you were clearly intelligent because you were merging in and out of traffic, but in the sense I'm using the word, you were not conscious, you were not experiencing the world. I mean, you were, if your foot caught on fire, you'd feel it, but you weren't kind of experiencing the world. And then instantly it all came on and you uh, were an entity that experienced something. Or to put another way, uh, this is often illustrated with the problem of Mary by Frank Jackson and and he posits that uh, he offers somebody named Mary who uh, knows everything about color, everything, like at a godlike level, knows every single thing about color. But the catch, as you might guess, is she's never seen it. She's lived in a room, black and white, never seen it. And one day, she opens the door, she looks outside, and she sees red. And the question becomes, does she learn anything? And if, if did she learn something new? In other words, is experiencing something different than knowing something. And so those two things taken together, defining consciousness as having an experience of the world. Uh, I'll give one final one. Uh, you can hook a sensor up to a computer and you can program the sensor to, you can program the computer to play an MP3 if somebody's screaming, if the sensor hits 500 degrees. Can, but nobody would say at this day and age, the computer feels the pain. Could a computer feel anything?
1: Okay, I think there's a lot to unpack there. But um, I think computers can perceive the environment. Um, Your webcam is able to record the environment in the same way that your optical nerves are able to record the environment. When you're driving a car and daydreaming and kind of going on autopilot, if it were, as it were, um, there still are processes kind of running in the background. If you were to close your eyes, you would be much worse at, uh, doing that kind of lane merging and things like that. Um, and that's because you're still getting this sensory input, even if you're not like actively consciously aware of the fact that you're, um, observing that input. And so maybe that's what you're getting at with consciousness here is not only the actual task that's being performed, which I think computers are very good at. And we have self-driving cars out on the street in the Bay area every day. Um, but that, Awareness of the fact that you are performing this task. Um, this kind of meta level of I'm ensembling together all of these different sub components, um, whether that's uh, driving a car, thinking about the meeting that I'm running late to, uh, uh, some fight that I had with my significant other the night before, whatever it is, there's all these kind of individual processes running, and there could be this kind of global awareness of all of these different tasks. I think today where artificial intelligence sits is performing each one of these individual tasks extremely well towards some kind of objective function of, I need to not crash this car, I need to figure out how to resolve this conflict or whatever it may be, um, or play this game in an artificial intelligence setting. Um, But we don't yet have that kind of governing uh, overall strategy that's aware of making these trade-offs and then making those trade-offs in an intelligent way. But that overall strategy itself is just going to be going towards some specific reward function. Um, probably when you're out driving your car and you're spacing out, your overall reward function is, I want to be happy or healthy. I want to live a meaningful life or something like that. and it can be something nebulous, but you're also just this collection of uh, subroutines that are driving towards the specific uh, end result.
0: Um, yeah. So, but but the, the the direct question of what would it mean for a computer to feel pain? Could a computer? Will a computer feel pain? Right now, they can sense things, but they no nobody argues they have a self that experiences the pain. I mean, it, it matters, doesn't it? Because so if, it depends on what you mean by
1: pain. Like if you <laughs> mean you there's a, a, a response of your nervous systems to some outside stimuli that you it, it, it involves emotional, a, a negative response.
0: Mm-hmm. It involves emotional and, distress. I mean, it's, I don't know if you want to find your way around it. I mean, people know what pain is. I mean, you know, yeah. there's a difference. I mean, it, it hurts. Can it's a computer a, ever hurt?
1: It's a fundamentally negative response to what you're trying to achieve. So pain and suffering is the opposite of happiness. And your objective function as a human is happiness, let's say. So by failing to achieve that objective, you feel something like pain. And evolutionarily, we might have evolved this in order to avoid specific things. Like pain is, you, you get pain when you touch flame, so don't touch flame. And the reason behind that is biological systems degrade in high temperature environments, and you're not going to be able to reproduce or something like that. And so there's, you could argue that when a, uh, classification system fails to classify something and it gets penalized in its reward function. That's the equivalent of it being finding something that in its state of the world, it has failed to achieve its goal and it's, it's getting the opposite of what its uh, purpose is. And that's similar to pain and suffering in some way.
0: But is it, I mean, let's, let's, let's be candid. You can't take a person and torture them because you know that's that's a, a terrible thing to do because they experience pain. You 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 write a program that has an infinite loop that causes your computer to thrash. Nobody's going to suggest you should go to jail for that because people know those are two very different things. Um. So, so.
1: Yeah. So it's a negative neurological response based off of outside stimuli, and you can have a negative response to. A computer can have a negative response and perform based off of outside stimuli poorly relative to what it's trying to achieve. Although I would definitely agree with you that that's not a computer experiencing pain, but I think from a pure like chemical uh, level uh, down to just like the algorithmic component of it, um, they're not as uh, fundamentally different as because it's a human it's, it's magically, uh, there's something magic about it being a human, like a dog can also experience pain. Um, These worms, uh, I'm not as familiar with the literature on that, but like could potentially experience pain. And as you derive that further and further back, um, you might have to bend your definition of pain, maybe they're not feeling something in a central nervous system, like a human or a dog would, but they're Perceiving something that's negative to what they're trying to achieve with this utility function Um,
0: And i think right, but that's that's why but but we do draw a line and and I don't know that I would use the word magic the way you're doing it We we draw this line by saying that dogs Feel pain, so we outlaw animal cruelty Bacteria don't so we don't outlaw antibiotics Uh, that, That that difference is the material that there is a material difference between those two things.
1: So if the difference is a central nervous system and pain is being defined as a nervous response to um, to some outside stimuli, then unless we explicitly design machines to have central nervous systems, then I don't think they will ever experience
0: pain. Let me ask a totally whole, whole different one. So thanks thanks for indulging me in all of that, because I, I just think it, it matters because uh, up until uh, 30 years ago, veterinarians typically didn't use anesthetic. They, they, they were told that animals couldn't feel pain. Mm -hmm. Babies were operated on in the nineties. open heart surgery under the theory, they couldn't feel pain. And what what really intrigues me is the idea of how would we know if a machine did and, and, and so I guess that's what I'm trying to deconstruct, but, but enough on that. Um, So there are these two camps that, you know, that you hear about, there's a group of people that are, and, and we'll, talk about jobs here in a minute, employment and those concerns. But there's there's groups of people that are legitimately afraid of AI. And you, you know all the names. You, you get Elon Musk. You get Stephen Hawking. Bill Gates has thrown in his hat with that. Wozniak has. Nick Bostrom writes books that uh, wrote a book that says, you know, existential threat and all of that. And then you have, you know, Mark Zuckerberg says, no, no, no. You get uh, Ornette over at the Allen Institute you know, work, just working on uh, some very basic problem. You get Andrew Eing with his um, overpopulation on Mars. This is, this is not helpful to even have this conversation. Why, what is different about those two groups in your mind? Like, what is the difference in how they view the world that gives them these incredibly different viewpoints?
1: I think it goes down to a definition problem. So as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, when you ask people what is artificial intelligence, everybody gives you a different answer. Um, I think each one of these experts would also give you a different answer. Um, I think if you define artificial intelligence as matrix multiplication and gradient descent um, in a deep learning system, uh, trying to achieve a very specific classification output given some uh, pixel input or something like that, It's very difficult to kind of conceive that as some sort of existential threat for humanity. But if you define uh, artificial intelligence as this general intelligence, this kind of emergent uh, singularity um, where the the machines don't hit the plateau, um, that they continue to advance well beyond humans, um, maybe to the point where they don't need humans or uh, we become the ants in that system that becomes very rapidly a very existential threat. Um, I don't think that, as I said before, I don't think there's an incremental uh, improvement from algorithms as they exist in the academic literature today to that singularity, but I think it can be a slippery slope, and I think that's what a lot of these experts are talking about, where if it does become this dynamic system that feeds on itself, um, by the time we realize it's happening, it'll be too late. Um, whether or not that's because of the algorithms that we have today, um, or algorithms down the line, it does make sense to start having conversations about that, uh, just because of the way that, uh, our government tends, the timescales over which governments and policies tend to work. Um, but I don't think, uh, someone's going to design a TensorFlow or MXNet algorithm tomorrow that's going to take over
0: the world. Do you worry about, um, you know, there's legislation in Europe to basically say if an AI, you know, an narrow AI makes a decision about whether you should get an auto loan or something, uh, you deserve to know why it turned you down. Is that a legitimate request or is it, is it like you go to somebody at Google and say, why does this site rank number one and this site rank number two? And you know, they, 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 there's no way to know at this point. There's just no way to know. Uh, or is that something that with the, with the auto loan thing, you're like, nope, here are the, here are the big bullet points of, of what went into it. And, and if that becomes the norm, does that slow down AI in any way?
1: I think it's important to make sure uh, just from a societal standpoint that we continue to strive towards uh, not being discriminatory towards uh, specific groups. Um, and people. And I think it can be very difficult when you uh, have something that looks like a black box from the outside uh, to be able to say, okay, was this being fair um, based off of the fairness that we as a society have agreed upon? And the machine doesn't have that context. The machine doesn't have the policy necessarily inside to make sure that it's being as fair as possible. So I think um, we need to make sure that we do put these constraints on these systems so that it meets what we've agreed upon as a society um, in laws, et cetera, to, uh, to adhere to and that it should be held to the same standard as if, it, if there was a human making that same decision.
0: So there is of course, a lot of legitimate fear um, wrapped up about uh, the effect of automation and artificial intelligence on Uh, employment. And and just to to set the problem up for the listeners, there's broadly, of course, three camps. Everybody kind of intuitively knows this. There's one group that says uh, we're going to advance our technology to the point that there'll be a group of people who do not have the education skills needed to compete essentially with the machines. And we'll have a permanent underclass of people who are unemployable. uh, You know, it would be like the great depression never goes away. And then there are people who say, Oh no, no, no. You don't understand everything everything every job a machine's going to be able to do you'll reach a point where the machine will learn it faster than the human and and then that's it everybody's replaceable. and then you get a third group that says no no that's all ridiculous we've had we've had technology come along as transformative as this we've had electricity and machines replacing animals and and we always maintain full employment because people just learn how to use these tools to increase their own productivity and and we maintain full employment and we have uh, growing wages so which of those or a fourth one do you identify with um so th- this might
1: be an unsatisfying answer but i think we're going to go through all three phases um i think we're in the third camp right now where people are learning new systems and it's happening at a pace where uh people can go to a, a computer science boot camp and become an engineer and uh and try to try to retrain and learn some of these systems and adapt to this uh, changing scenario. Um, I think very rapidly, uh, especially at the kind of exponential pace, the technology tends to evolve. Um, it does become very, very difficult. Uh, 50 years ago, um, if you wanted to like take apart your telephone and try to figure out how it works or repair it or something like that, like that was something that like a kid could do it at a, at a camp. of thing like a entry like circuits cam that's impossible to do with an iphone um i think that's going to continue to kind of happen with some of these more advanced systems and you're going to need to spend your entire life kind of understanding some subcomponent of it um and then in the, the the further future as we kind of move towards this direction of artificial general intelligence like once a machine is a thousand times, ten thousand times, a hundred thousand times smarter by whatever definition smarter is than a human, and that increases exponentially um, at a, at an exponential pace. Um, I think there won't be we won't need a lot of different things. Whether or not that's a fundamentally bad thing is up for debate. Uh, I think one thing that's different about this than like the uh, industrial revolution or the agricultural revolution or things like that that have happened throughout human history is instead of this happening over the course of generations or decades, where maybe if your father and your your grandfather and your entire uh, kind of family tree did a specific job, but then that job doesn't exist anymore, you train yourself to do something different. Um, Once it starts to happen over the course of a decade or a year or a month, um, it becomes much harder to completely retrain. Um, that being said, uh, there's lots of thoughts about whether or not humans need to be working to be happy um, and whether or not there could be some other fundamental thing that would increase the net happiness and uh, fulfillment of people in the world besides sitting at a desk for 40 hours a week. Um, and maybe that's actually a good thing if we can set up the societal constructs to allow people to do that in a healthy and happy way
0: do you have any thoughts on um computers displaying emotions obviously you know um emulating emotions is that is that is that going to be a space that people are going to want authentic human experiences in those in the future or or are we like no look at how people you know talk to their Dog or something. I mean, if if it's good enough to kind of fool you, you just go along with the uh, conceit.
1: I mean, the the great thing about uh, computers and these are artificial intelligence systems and things like that is, if you point them towards a specific target, um, they'll get pretty good at hitting that target. And so, if the goal is to mimic human emotion, um, I think that that's something that's achievable. Whether or not a human Uh, cares or is even able to distinguish between that and actual human emotion uh, could be very difficult. Um, If you're chatting with a chat bot um, and it makes you feel better. So back at uh, Cornell, where I did my PhD, they had this uh, psychology chat bot called Ezra. Um, I think this was like back in the seventies. And it went through a specific school of psychological, uh, like behavioral therapy thought um, replied, replied, with specific uh, ways, and people found it incredibly helpful. Even if they knew that it was just a machine responding to them, it was a way for them to kind of get out their emotions and work through specific problems. And so I think as these machines get more sophisticated and able, um, as long as it's providing utility to the end user, does it matter what's hap- who's behind the screen?
0: You know, that's, that's, uh, that's a big question. I mean, you know, Weizenbaum shut down Eliza because he said that when a machine says, uh, I understand that it's a lie, there's no I and there's nothing that understands anything. And he he had real, you know, he had real issues with that. So but then, but then
1: when they shut it down, some of the end users were upset because oh, they were yeah. still yeah. getting quite a bit of utility out of it. And Uh-oh. so There's this moral question of whether or not you can take away something from someone who is deriving benefit from it as well.
0: So I guess, you know, the concern and, and is that maybe we reach a day where a AI best friend is better than a real one. Maybe the AI one doesn't stand you up and an AI spouse is better than a human spouse because of all of those reasons. And is that a better world or is it not?
1: I think it becomes a much more dangerous world uh, because, as you said before, someone could decide to turn off the machine. Um, and when it's someone taking away your psychologist, that could be very dangerous when it's someone deciding that you didn't pay your monthly fee. So they're going to turn off your spouse. Um, that could be quite a bit worse as well. Um, as you mentioned before, people don't necessarily associate the feelings or uh, pain or anything like that with the machine. Um, but as these get more and more lifelike, and as they are designed with the reward function of becoming more and more human-like, um, I think that distinction is gonna become quite a bit harder um, for us to, to understand, and it not only affects the machine, which you can make the argument uh, doesn't have a voice, but when it'll start to affect the people as
0: well. One one more question along these lines. You know, you were a Forbes 30 under 30. Do you think that your views? So you, you know, you're you're fine with computer emotion. Then you have like this set of views. Do you notice any generational difference between researchers who have been in it longer? That maybe you and and your um, uh, and people of, of your age and training look at it as a whole differently than another generation might have.
1: I think there's always gonna be generational differences. Um, People grow up uh, in different times and contexts, uh, societal norms shift, um, I would argue usually for the better, but not always. Um, And so I think that that context in which you were raised, um, that initial training data that you apply your transfer learning to for the rest of your life um, has a huge effect on what you're actually going to do and how you perceive the world moving forward.
0: So I've, I spent a good amount of time today at SIGOPT. Uh, Can you tell me tell me what you're trying to do there and why you started or co-founded it and what the mission is and give me that whole story? Yeah, definitely.
1: So SIGOPT is an optimization as a service company um, or a software as a service offering. What we do is help people configure these complex systems. So when you're building a neural network or maybe it's a reinforcement learning system or algorithmic trading uh, strategy, there's often many different kind of tunable configuration parameters. These are the settings that you need to uh, put in place before the system itself starts to do any sort of learning. Um, Things like the depth of the neural network, the learning rate, um, some of the stochastic gradient descent parameters, et cetera. Um, these are often kind of nuisance parameters that are uh, brushed under the rug. They're typically solved via kind of relatively simplistic methods like brute forcing it or trying random configurations. So what we do is we take an ensemble of the state-of-the-art uh, research from academia, in Bayesian and global optimization, and we uh, ensemble all of these uh, algorithms behind a simple API. So when you're downloading, mxnet or tensorflow or cafe 2, whatever it is you don't have to waste a bunch of time trying different things via trial and error um, we can guide you to the best solution quite a bit faster um,
0: so do you have any any stories any success stories that uh, that you'd like to talk about
1: yeah definitely so like one of our customers is hotwire um, they're using us uh, to do things like uh, ranking systems Uh, We work with a variety of different algorithmic trading firms to uh, make their strategies more efficient. We also have this great academic program where uh, SIGopt is free for any academic at any university or national lab anywhere in the world, so we're helping kind of accelerate the flywheel of science by allowing people to spend less time doing trial and error. Uh, I wasted way too much of my PhD on this, to be completely honest. Fine-tuning different configuration settings and bioinformatics algorithms. So our goal is, if we can have humans do what they're really good at, which is creativity, understanding the context and the domain of a problem, and then we can uh, make the trial and error component as, as little as possible. Hopefully, everything happens a little bit faster and a little bit better and more efficiently.
0: And and what are what are what are the big challenges you're you're facing? And yeah, what are, what are those? Yeah, so where this system
1: uh, makes the biggest difference is in large, complex systems, where it's very difficult to uh, manually tune or brute force this problem. Uh, Humans tend to be pretty bad at doing 20-dimensional optimization in their head. Um, But a surprising number of uh, approaches still, uh, people still take that approach. Uh, because they're uh, unable to access some of this incredible uh, research that's been going on in academia for the last several decades. So our goal is to make that as easy as possible. One of our challenges is um, finding people with these interesting complex problems. I think the recent uh, surge of interest in deep learning and reinforcement learning and the complexity that's being imbued in a lot of these systems is extremely good for us, and we're able to ride that wave and help these people realize the potential of these systems quite a bit faster than they would otherwise, um, but having the market kind of come to us uh, is, is something that uh, we're really excited about, but it's, it's not instant.
0: Do you, find that, do you find that people come to you and say, hey, we have this data set, and we think somewhere in here uh, we can figure out, you know, whatever? Uh, or do they just say, we have this data, what can we do with it? Or do they come to you and say, uh, we've heard about this AI thing and want to know what we can do?
1: Yeah, so there are companies that, that help solve that particular problem um, where they're just given raw data and they help you build a model and kind of apply it to some business context. Um, where SigOps sits, um, which is slightly different than that, is when people come to us, they have something in place. They already have data scientists or machine learning engineers. They've already applied the, their domain expertise to really understand their customers, the business problem they're trying to solve, everything like that. And what they're looking for is to just get the most out of these systems that they've built. Um, or they want to build a more advanced system as rapidly as possible. And so out bolts on top of these pre-existing systems and gives them that boost by Fine-tuning all of these different configuration parameters to get to their maximal performance. So Sometimes we do uh, uh, Meet people like that and we pass them on to some of our great partners um, But when someone has a problem and they just want to get the most out of it That's where we can come in and provide this black box optimization on top of it
0: All right and final final question and a half Um do you do you speak a lot? Do you tweet? Uh, like, if people want to follow you and keep up with what you're doing, what's the best way to do that? So they can
1: follow uh, Sigopt on Twitter. Uh, we're just at Sigopt. Um, we have a blog uh, where we post technical and high-level blog posts about optimization and some of the uh, different advancements in deep learning and reinforcement learning. Uh, we publish papers, um, but blog.sigopt.com and on Twitter at, at sigopt is the best way to follow a salon.
0: All right. Well, it has been an incredibly fascinating hour and I want to thank you for taking the time.
1: Excellent. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be on the show.
0: I'd also like to take a moment and thank the sponsor of this episode, NVIDIA. NVIDIA is, after all, the inventor of the GPU, which has ignited the modern AI era. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might want to check out their AI podcast called AI Podcast. It's available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.